Feminist Focus. Hosted by Laura Alves. And with this, hello and welcome everyone to Feminist Focus. This is the infamous so-called lost episode that I decided to finally re-record because, as I have mentioned multiple times during this broadcast, actually there was a very first episode of Feminist Focus and that episode could not be recorded and could also not be broadcast because of a mistake that I made with the software and because of the fact that the software was basically not picking up on my voice. It was possible to listen to the songs on air, but my voice was not there. So basically, the first ever episode of Feminist Focus that I recorded does not exist anymore. And the topic of this particular episode, and also the episode that we are currently making, is consent. And initially, I decided to do the very first episode of Feminist Focus about consent, because it's probably the feminist topic that I know the most about. And in the beginning, I thought, okay, it would be an interesting introduction into the entire topic because it covers a lot of issues that are actually relevant to both genders, all genders, and also it's kind of something that is very close to the everyday reality that a lot of us experience. So it's probably something that kind of makes feminism easier to grasp, so to say. But all of this didn't happen, and that's why this week we're finally catching up on things and we're finally going to be discussing consent. So first of all, maybe because I initially mentioned that for me consent is actually one of the topics that I'm most familiar with within the realm of feminism. So how did I first come in contact with consent and why is this something that I hear so much about and why is this also something that I decided to inform myself about quite, quite a lot. So basically the first time or one of the first times that I was ever confronted with the concept of consent was in the context of a class discussion that I had in my very first semester in undergrad. We were discussing about a law that had recently been introduced in Germany, and that law is, is colloquially referred to as the no-means-no law, which basically means that whenever someone has said no to any sort of sexual encounter and the other person has not respected that no, this would constitute a form of sexual assault. And before that, the rule had actually been that the person that commits the assault would have to violently force the other person and that had now been strengthened, the rule had been tightened and I very much welcomed this as did many other people but it was a controversial discussion to the extent that many people, especially lawyers, they emphasized that this kind of goes against the provision that you have to presume innocence like, that this goes against the presumption of innocence. Because basically, you would assume that someone had said no, and it was incredibly difficult to prove actually whether someone had said no. So this was the discussion that we were having. It was actually a discussion in law class, so it somewhat makes sense that we addressed this. 
and that we looked at this from both sides. But basically, our professor was trying to portray the situation as such that the no means slow law is a major mistake and that it should not have been um, it should not have been passed. And me and one other student, it was a class of 50 people, me and one other student, we were the only people who actually, you know, critically engaged with this and tried to counter some of the points that he had made. Everybody else was very silent about it. And I'm not necessarily saying that they were silent about it because they agreed, even though probably for a substantial share of the group this was actually the case. But I do suppose that quite a lot of them were silent because they were not really well equipped to participate in that kind of a discussion, because consent is just simply a concept that in many parts of the world, and even in a part of the world as developed as Germany, where I did my undergrad, is unfamiliar to people. And I hope that to a certain extent today's broadcast might change something about this. And in case it does, I think this is a very important first step towards making people aware of consent and also towards making people aware of how to treat other people in a respectful manner and in a manner that actually makes sexual encounters enjoyable for everyone involved. So, coming back to what consent actually means, I would say that there are a couple of misconceptions about consent that I would like to clarify before we get into what consent actually is and what are kind of the constituent parts of consent. So, in terms of common misconceptions about consent, I think it's really, really important to emphasize that consent education is not supposed to be reactive. This is not about, you know, something has happened, maybe there have been allegations of sexual harassment or sexual violence, or someone has even been convicted of these things, and then, you know, we suddenly decide that it's probably necessary and important to, to educate people about these issues. Definitely, if this is a conclusion that is drawn from allegations of harassment or assault, this is a smart conclusion and this is something that should be done. But more importantly, consent education is something that should be preemptive. We should educate people about consent before anything happens. And it's not, you know, it's not primarily a form of response or a form of, you know, uh, pretending that we're making an effort and in the form of pretending that we're changing structures that make sexual assault and sexual harassment possible in the first place. So that's the first thing that I would like to emphasize. And then secondly, it's also important that consent is not exclusively about physical violence. Even though this was kind of the example that I used in the beginning, it is important to emphasize that we are not only talking about assault, we were talking about something that is arguably less severe, but at the same time can still strongly hurt and traumatize people. Namely, just the transgression of boundaries that people have set for themselves and the fact that many people do not understand that at a certain point they're actually crossing a boundary of another person. And, and thereby causing hurt and trauma to that person. Uh, for example, kissing someone without their consent would not constitute 
any form of sexual assault, at least not in the German legal system. Maybe this is different in other countries. Uh, I wouldn't know. But it's still something that is highly unpleasant, both within the particular social situation, but also, and most importantly, for, for the person that uh, is being kissed uh, without them wanting to be kissed. Um, just, you know, to say and to explain that with consent, we set the bar a little higher. This is not just about preventing people from experiencing severe physical violence, but we do actually believe that there is more to consent and that it's also important to take cases into account that go beyond such a narrow conception of, of what consent entails. Okay, so now that I've kind of explained in a bit of a negative framing what consent is not, or what consent is not exclusively, of course the question that you are asking yourselves is what actually is consent in a positive framing. And I would say that it's first of all rather simple and straightforward. So consenting to something actually means that you're only doing something that you actually really want to do. And this is not only about the sexual sphere, even though the word consent is very often used in that context. This is essentially about pretty much anything that has to do with, for example, your physical integrity or also, you know, non-sexual intimacy that you choose to share with other people. I think a very good example of this, and uh, thankfully this is also something that I feel has been more prominent in, in everyday conversation in recent years, is children and physical intimacy with children and actually giving children the opportunity to choose whether they want to be physically intimate with someone or not. So for example, that children can actually decide for themselves whether they want to hug a relative or whether they feel uncomfortable in that kind of a situation and then it's perfectly fine for them to, you know, not consent to hugging a relative. So this is also a way in which we can conceptualize consent and kind of a field of application of the concept of consent. So, before we get deeper into all of this, and before we kind of try to deconstruct consent into its constituent parts, so that we better understand how this concept can be applied in practice, I am going to play the first song for today's show. And uh, as I said, there is this lost episode, the first episode of Feminist Focus about consent, and in, in that episode, um, I actually played four songs as well. And the songs, they, they were played. And I managed to play the songs. Uh, so you actually, if you listen to that episode, you could hear these songs on the radio. And one of the songs that I played in that show was by a German female rapper. Her name is Yuyu. And uh, I want to play another song of hers in this episode, kind of like as a reference back to the last episode. I'm not going to play the same song, but I'm going to play a song from the same album. So you are now going to listen to the song Bye Bye by Yu Yu.
Feminist Focus. Hosted by Laura Albers. And with that, welcome back to Feminist Focus. You just listened to the song Bye Bye by Yu Yu. And we are now moving on to kind of deconstructing consent into its constituent parts and trying to make consent more understandable in the sense that the concept that is kind of at this point very theoretical and very much, you know, up in the air becomes more applicable in practice. And in order to do that, there is a model that I have found very useful with an abbreviation that is easy to remember, namely FRIES. So F-R-I-E-S. And each of these, you know, letters basically stands for a subconcept within the concept of consent. And that is what we're going to go through a little bit now. So first of all, the letter F in FRIES stands for freely given, which basically means that consent is not consent when someone is coerced into consenting. And this does not necessarily, as I was saying in the beginning, it does not necessarily entail physical violence. There may be other ways in which someone can be coerced into sexual activities. For example, and very importantly to mention as well, just wearing someone down is also a form of coercion. Asking someone so often that at some point they're basically just like, yeah, whatever, let's get this over with and leave me alone. This is not consent either. So you can already see that the concept of consent is quite nuanced and that it's important to take quite a lot of different situations and scenarios into account when assessing consent. And this also becomes more apparent if we look at the second letter that comprises the word fries, and that letter is R. And in the context of consent, R stands for reversible, which basically means that if I have consented to something, I can always revoke that decision. And at any point during the sexual act, for example, I can decide that I no longer want this, and I can retract my consent. And this is quite important and also quite interesting in the context of, you know, people that are against consent, always trying to, to frame consent as though it was a contract and as though it takes uh, spontaneity out of sexual situations. And maybe we're going to get into this uh, a bit later in the discussion, why this framing is problematic in and of itself. But it's not only problematic, it's also quite inaccurate. Because in a, contact, uh, in a contract, you cannot basically just say, okay, I'm not abiding by this contract anymore. You are bound to the contract. And this is very different in cases of social interaction and in cases of consent. You're not bound by the consent that you have given at any specific point in time, you can always change your mind. That's really, really important to emphasize. And then thirdly, the letter I in the word fries. It stands for what is probably the most important component of consent and also something that is very often used in conjunction with consent as kind of a specific term. And 
the I in consent stands for informed. So maybe you have at some point heard that people do not only speak of consent, but that they actually speak of informed consent. And what this means is quite simply that a person that is supposed to make a choice, that is supposed to choose whether they want to consent to something or not, that this person actually needs to have all the available information in order to make that decision. So if some sort of information is being kept from the person who is making the decision, they cannot really and properly consent because that information would have been vital for them to be able to make up their mind um, about what is happening to them. So for example, um, if someone decides that they consent to a sexual encounter and at the point at which they consent to this, they believe that um, there will actually be contraception so that, for example, a condom is provided, then that is perfectly fine and then that person has consented to this and can engage in the sexual act. But, you know, given that the situation changes or given that, for example, the other person didn't tell that person that, in fact, there is no contraception and that they do not intend on using a condom, then it's perfectly fine if the other person says, hey, okay, this is an information that I did not have when I made my decision. And now when I take into account this new bit of information, I actually no longer consent to us having sex. So I do not want to do this. This is what is meant by informed and by informed consent in general. So uh, next to lastly, within the abbreviation of fries, we find the adjective enthusiastic. And that is actually something that is really interesting in conjunction with the, the initial example that I had. The example about my professor and the discussion that we were having in class about the no means no legislation. Actually, in Sweden, I believe it is. In Sweden, there is a different kind of legislation in place. And that legislation is not called no is no legislation, but it's called only yes means yes legislation. And that is actually where the concept of enthusiastic consent is really taken into account. Because it basically means that a person is only giving consent to something when they emphatically say, yes, I want to do this. And for example, just letting something happen to you is not consent. And this is very important. And now maybe I should... Um, advance a little trigger warning here because it's getting a bit specific in, in terms of sexual assault and, and sexual violence. So I'm putting a trigger warning right here. Um, for example, people in situations where they are being violently attacked, very often they tend to just freeze. So they basically, it's this, you have this either this fight or flight response, or you have this response that when you're not able to fight, when you're not able to flee, you basically pretend like you're dead. Like, it's a very animalistic instinct, and it's really normal that people do this. So very often, people in that kind of a situation, they're not in a mental state in which they can say, no, leave me alone, I do not want to do this. So actually having a kind of legislation that says that only yes means yes um, 
is very sensible and and is very much in line with with um, the idea of consent and with the concept behind consent. And lastly, as I was saying, we have this abbreviation fries, and the last letter of the abbreviation fries is an S. This S stands for specific, and specific means that you know you are consenting to a particular kind of act. You're not consenting to a person as a whole or to a situation as a whole. That's not how it works. Basically, for example, one can say as an example that if you are consenting to kissing someone, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're consenting to having sex with that person because that is something that is very different. And if I'm saying that I'm okay with one specific thing, with one particular person, it does not mean that I'm okay with a different thing with one particular person, and of course it also does not mean that I'm okay with doing the same thing with another person, but hopefully that should be obvious. Unfortunately, it very often isn't. So, now that I've elaborated on this quite a lot, which I thought was necessary, because cons like consent it always, it's always framed as something that is so incredibly complicated, but I feel that if you look at these different components of the Fry's model, you can see that a lot of this is very straightforward and should be self-evident. But, you know, unfortunately, it very often isn't. Um, so before we get a little bit deeper into this and also discuss a bit about consent workshops, why they might be useful and why the institutions that we are a part of throughout the course of our lives, why these institutions have a certain responsibility towards us with regard to consent education, we are actually going to listen to the next song. And the next song is also by an artist that was featured in the initial <laughs> Lost Consent episode. And this artist is Lord. You probably all know her, even though it has actually unfortunately been a while since she last released music. And the song that we are now going to listen to is on her latest album, Melodrama, and the song is called Supercut. Feminist Focus Hosted by Laura Alves And with this welcome back to Feminist Focus, you just listened to the song Supercut by Lord, and we were just basically discussing the concept of consent and we were trying to get deeper into what consent actually means in practice. And I hope that I have been somewhat able to achieve that in the first half of this broadcast. And now what we're going to talk about a little bit more is an aspect of consent that for me personally is quite interesting and that I have also engaged with quite extensively in the recent past, namely consent education. So as I was saying in the beginning, I think that quite a lot of people of all ages, really, not necessarily just young people, also older people, teenagers, young adults, everyone, basically, that quite a lot of people do not understand the concept of consent properly and maybe have not even come in contact with the concept yet. And one of the reasons why people very often have not come in contact 
with this concept is sex education in schools. And uh, I could go on a whole rant about how horrible I think sex education in schools is. Maybe it has changed to a certain extent in recent years, and I actually think it has, because the other day I was listening to a podcast where they actually mentioned that in some schools in Berlin, children are being educated about consent. But then again, you know, it's Berlin, it's the capital city, it's probably quite similar in London, but in more rural parts of of these two countries and also in other countries. Consent is not really an issue in high school education. So basically what we learned, I graduated from high school, I think, six years ago. Yeah, six years ago. So what we learned back then was basically a lot about fertility and reproduction and how reproductive organs work, how children are being created and like how the fetus grows in the womb and whatever, all of these kinds of very biological aspects of sex education, which of course is, is interesting and important, but this is not where sex education should stop, because in practice probably the, the biological aspect of sex education plays a rather minor role um, in, in most people's lives. And the the more important part by far is the part that is about you know, socio-cultural aspects of, of sexuality and how people behave towards each other and how they can treat each other respectfully and properly. So what I'm meaning to say by this is that essentially we cannot expect teenagers or young adults to have this kind of knowledge if they are not being taught that in schools. So very often a situation that we encounter is that students end up attending university without ever having come in contact properly with the concept of consent. And of course, there will always be people who are interested in these kinds of issues, uh, you know, because of an intrinsic interest that they have. But very often, these people who actively seek out information about consent and want to learn more about it, these people are often not the main problem. The people that are usually the main problem are those who do not care about this topic out of their own volition and who would have to, you know, have been exposed to it by an institution, by the educational system, to actually find out anything about it. So basically, we find ourselves in a situation where university students do not know enough about this. And this is the point where consent education should start. And that is also the reason why I believe that it's so important to have consent workshops at universities and to also have these consent workshops be mandatory. Because as I was just saying, otherwise you have this exact same self-selection problem. You have the problem that the people who would voluntarily dedicate their time and energy to attending a consent workshop, learning more about consent, they are very often the people who already know quite a lot about it, and very often they are also the people who are not the main problem, I would say. So basically, that, I think, in a nutshell, is the reason why institutions have a certain kind of obligation to provide these workshops, and moreover, they also have an obligation to provide these workshops because very often in institutional spaces, be that actual physical spaces like 
a lecture hall, a cafeteria, a party probably, or just simply spaces in terms of, you know, social interaction through groups that you meet in university, through people that you encounter there and that you then maybe decide to meet in your private free time. Through these kinds of institutional spaces, um, a lot of the interaction happens that then results in situations where people would have to know something about consent. And that is exactly how consent workshops work. Like, of course, they are trying to also transmit a certain level of theoretical knowledge. For example, the, the first part of the radio show that you just listened to, this is also something that in the consent workshop I myself devised for my undergrad university, that is something that would have been mentioned there, and that is something that would have explained that uh, would have been explained there, especially the Fry's model. But first and foremost, and most importantly, these consent workshops, they try to work with scenarios. Because it is very often the case that each one of us, me included, we can think of at least one or even several specific situations um, in which we were required to give consent or in which someone else was in a position in, in which they would have had to give consent to us and in which we may have acted in a way that we now regret or that we do not necessarily believe was the right way to act. I can definitely think of at least one of these situations, and probably even several, when I consider myself being in both roles, in the role of the person who um, gives consent and in the role of the person who takes consent, so to say. Um, so basically what these scenarios then do in consent workshops is that they try to outline a situation that is as close to the lived reality of a university student as possible, and then put people in a situation in which they have to make a choice about how they would act if they were that person. So for example, one of the, I would say, best resources that is out there and that is freely available um, is consent education material by the student union at the University of Oxford. And um, there they have a couple of scenarios that relate, for example, to the issues of consent in a monogamous relationship, which is actually very often an issue that is neglected, even though it's extremely important as well. And just because someone is very close to you, you have an, emo an emotional bond to someone and you care about someone deeply, does not mean that they may sometimes overstep with regard to consent, or that you may sometimes overstep with regard to consent in that relationship. So some of the scenarios deal with monogamous relationships. Others, for example, um, deal with intoxication, which is also an extremely important, you know, sub-issue, I would say, within consent. Because whenever people um, are drunk, or on any sort of drugs, really, you very easily encounter a situation in which boundaries get blurred. And to a certain extent, I would say that is even the reason why people get drunk, of course, because um, you're less inhibited, it's easier for you to approach people, it's easier to be spontaneous and to get yourself in, in an exciting situation that you might want to be in. But as I said, the boundaries very quickly get very, very blurry. And that is why I think it's extremely important for consent workshops to also take these kinds of situations into account. 
or maybe take situations into account where someone may be suffering from memory loss due to intoxication and may not actually know what happened to them. And it's extremely important to, to learn how to navigate these kinds of situations in, as I was saying before, a preemptive manner, in a way that actually prepares you to navigate these situations in your daily, everyday life. And one more point that I would like to mention before we listen to the last song, and we then in the end get into a couple of conclusions about all things consent and what we have just been discussing, is the question of where does the responsibility lie for consent? When we now imagine a scenario with two people and these people are kind of becoming intimate with each other and um, something might or might not be happening, the responsibility for consent always lies with the person who wants to do something. So you basically do not have a responsibility to provide consent in the sense that, you know, for example, someone wants to kiss you and then the other person, you know, kind of expects you to say something. And if you don't say something, that probably means that you consent. That's not how it works. But the responsibility lies with the person who wants to kiss you. That person is in the position to, you know, make sure that you are actually comfortable in this situation. And that person is also in a position to ask you if you are okay with this. Because in that particular situation, they are actually the one who wants something. And I think it's extremely important to make people aware of this. Um, because that also prevents, I would say, to a certain extent, victim blaming. Because if you can just basically say, you know, they could have said something, they should have said something, they're not a victim, or they're not suffering, or this was an experience that they actually kind of agreed to. Um, that is something that's deeply problematic, and that's probably something that can be prevented if we, from the get-go, emphasize on who the responsibility lies in that kind of a social situation. So yeah, that was basically that with regard to consent workshops. And before we get into a couple of conclusions, we're going to listen to another song. And actually, in the previous episode of Feminist Focus, I had a playlist by a good friend of mine, Helen, that she created for us, which was amazing. And this playlist did, in fact, include a German song. I always play at least one German song in every episode. But the German song that Helen's playlist included was in English. So actually, in last week's episode, we didn't hear any German sung or spoken. And uh, that's why, basically, at this point, we are compensating for this by playing two German songs. And the next song that I'm going to play is a feature between a female artist and a male artist. And the name of the female artist is Miss Platinum, and the name of the male artist is Martaria. And uh, they actually have a, a collaboration album, basically. It's more of a collaboration EP, really. It's like five songs or something. The two of them and another artist. But this song that you're now going to listen to from the collaboration EP is just those two people. And it's called Audiboy. Uh, and it's really cool because it's basically about, you know, a guy who's very proud of his car and who's a bit of a macho type. And then the girl sets his car on fire. <laughs> That's the story that is being told. Um, so yeah, 
Enjoy the song Here Comes Auto Boy by Miss Platinum and Martaria. Feminist Focus Hosted by Laura Alves Here I am, back again, for one last time in this consent episode of Feminist Focus, the so-called lost episode that I'm currently re-recording for you. And we already discussed quite a bit about consent and kind of the theoretical background behind it. And uh, we also, uh, in the previous section before the song that I just played, we addressed consent workshops and consent education in general and why this is a good thing and why this is something that should be done. And uh, before we get into some final conclusions about consent and what we can kind of take away broadly from this episode, I would like to address the question whether consent workshops are actually effective. And with regard to that, it's basically an appeal to research because um, there is not that much research about the effectiveness of consent workshops out there. And it would be really interesting to see whether consent workshops can actually lead to more, you know, consent-oriented behavior among people on the long term, and not, you know, just immediately after the consent workshop was conducted. That is something that requires a bit more research and if anyone is listening to this who is actually active in, in, in that field, that would be a very interesting case to research. But I would say even more importantly, a consequence that uh, consent workshops definitely do have is that they empower people. They empower people to put them into a situation where they actually understand that it is perfectly fine and acceptable for them to say no. So I would say that even probably the more important effect of consent workshops is, is not necessarily that the, the perpetrator learns what they should not be doing, but that the potential victim understands that there are certain situations in which they are entitled to act in a certain way and that then empowers them to, you know, protect themselves and to, yeah, to basically just understand that they do not have to say yes to everything, which I would say is especially something that is important when we talk about women. So far, this has all been a bit gender neutral, which I think makes sense in the context of consent, but it has to be emphasized that very often, you know, it's it's a man that is uh, transgressing these boundaries, and that very often it's a woman who finds herself in a situation where... Um, she does not really know whether she's allowed or entitled to say no to something. And a consent workshop can definitely teach women that, yes, they are, in fact, entitled to say no. So this is another distinct consequence of consent workshops that I think is very important and very valuable. So let us conclude this with a couple of small remarks and a couple of, like, distilled thoughts from what I just discussed quite extensively about consent. So first of all, I think it's important to emphasize that universities, and ultimately also the state, as a provider of education in, in many cases, that they have a certain responsibility to support education, because 
student collectives or civil society organizations or whoever believes that consent is important and pushes for these things, they can only do so much when they do not receive institutional support. So in order to, you know, disseminate the idea of consent to a wider audience, something that is incredibly crucial is institutional support. And then secondly, what I think can also be emphasized and to also somewhat end uh, this broadcast on a positive note, I think that things are changing with regard to consent and that we can especially observe this since uh, the Me Too movement a couple of years ago. I think the Me Too movement was actually the first time that issues of consent reached a broad societal basis and that quite a lot of people, even like lay people, not just celebrities, started discussing about issues of consent openly and started to acknowledge uh, and to also share experiences that they themselves have had with consent. And I think that this is a positive development and I hope that the development is going to continue like this in the future. And we can definitely all contribute by distributing this kind of information, by talking about consent, um, that this positive development continues in the future. So on that note, we are going to play the last song for today. I'm very happy that you tuned in. There are two more episodes of uh, Feminist Focus that are going to be broadcast, one in two weeks and then the other one in a month. I will definitely keep you updated about this. And the last song that you are now going to listen to is uh, by Billie Eilish and Khalid, a song that you probably know, and that is called Lovely. Goodbye, and thank you for tuning in.